You're listening to the Grace Covenant East Lincoln Audio Podcast. With the new year comes a new teaching series. Um, it's been some time since we've spent any larger amount of time in one of the books of the Old Testament. So today and for the four weeks following, we're going to begin to spend some time in, in one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And uh, you might hear me say minor prophets and think, well, why would you consider something in the Bible to be minor? Isn't everything major? And the answer to that question is yes. And here's the explanation. There is a grouping of books in the Old Testament, um, uh, 12 to be, fa- uh, to, to, to be um, in reality, 12 that are um, classified as the minor prophets. Uh, because they're classified as the minor prophets doesn't mean that the, the writer uh, has any lesser value or importance, and it doesn't mean that the content is of any lesser value or importance. It simply means that 12 of the writers, when they wrote, they were very brief in the prophetic writings that they wrote, particularly when they're compared to the five major prophets, which would be um, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. If you've read those, you know they're long. Like Isaiah, it's got a lot of chapters. And so the 12 minor prophets, they're very brief uh, in, in their content. And the 12 minor prophets are actually the last 12 books of the Old Testament. It goes from Hosea all the way through Malachi. Now, I have to confess to you that uh, there are times when I'm reading through the Old Testament prophets, be they major or minor prophets, and I can get lost and I can get confused. Anybody else when you're just a little like, what's going on here? What are they saying? I mean, how do you deal with a scripture like this found in Amos? It says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. I mean, what do you do? Or how about in, in, in Hosea, it says, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. I mean, really? That, that's in the Bible? So what do, you, what do you do with that? How do you interpret this stuff? Is it relevant for today? Is there any personal application? And the answer to that question is yes, there is much personal application and there's a scripture in the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 that affirm this. And this is what it says. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How did that passage of scripture start? What did it say? All scripture. It didn't say some scripture, but it said all scripture. All scripture to begin with is God breathed. It came from God. It's inspired by God. All scripture is useful. It's useful for teaching. All scripture is useful for correcting. All scripture is is useful for rebuking. All scripture is useful for training in righteousness. And the conclusion is all scripture is useful. I'm going to say it again. All scripture is useful. Therefore, what we find in the major or the minor prophets, despite sometimes that we're confused and we get lost, there's something there for us that God wants to teach us, that he wants us to apply to our lives. So it's with this in mind that beginning today and for the next few weeks, we're going to dig into the book of Haggai. 
Um, what we want to do is discover the relevance of Haggai and learn how we can take the truth in Haggai and personally apply it to our life so that we can spir uh, experience spiritual growth and formation. Today, uh, what I'm going to do is um, I really want to take this time, most of the time, to... Um, to summarize Haggai or to kind of to give a, a, a survey, a flyover. And the reason that I want to do that is I think it's necessary for us to have a general understanding of the book of Haggai if we're really going to draw out the relevance and the personal application over the next two weeks. So here's what I want to tell you. Um, this is where the teacher in me comes out. If, honestly, my gifts are pastor-teacher. I'm really not a preacher, and most of you realize that within a couple of weeks after my being here. I'm a teacher. That's what I do. And so something like this allows me to have us dig in so we can pull out the truth of Scripture. So with that, what I want to tell you is that much of what I'm going to go over today you will not find in your notes because I felt like there was just some additional foundational stuff that we needed to know. However, I am going to cover almost all of the content in our notes. It'll just, you'll find sprinklings of it, but most of it will be towards the end. Um, so with that, uh, I want to begin by um, giving you a few general facts about the book of Haggai, and then we'll do a phase two. We'll dig in a little deeper today. So we've already established that Haggai is a prophetic book, but what we also need to take note of is that it, it's a historical account of the Jewish people. It's actually, actually a very accurate historical account of the Jewish people. Uh, Haggai was written in 520 B.C., um, and it's one of the uh, most precisely dated books uh, in the entire Bible. Um, the immediate problem in the book of Haggai was the rebuilding of God's house. But in reality, that only serves as a metaphor for the broader principle of doing the work of God in all of its forms. The purpose of the book is that God commissioned, God called Haggai to go to the Jewish people and through prophetic word encourage them to finish the construction uh, of the temple. Haggai was written after the Babylonian captivity, and we're going to talk about Babylonian captivity in just a moment, but it was written after the Babylonian captivity. Therefore, it's deeply intertwined with the narratives that are found in Ezra and Nehemiah, both of which were written after the Babylonian captivity. Um, I think that in order to fully grasp, to fully understand What's going on in Haggai? How, how is it relevant? How do we apply it to our life? That it's necessary that we actually take just a little bit of time and we talk about Babylonian captivity. So let me ask, what's the backstory of Babylonian captivity? What's the backstory of the Jews being ex in exile in Babylon? Well, for centuries, the Hebrew prophets had been accusing the Jewish people of breaking their covenant with God through idolatry and injustice. And the prophet said, if there is not a change, let me tell you what's going to happen. The Babylonian empire is going to come and they're going to take down the city of Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple and they're going to take the people off to Babylon. They're going to hold them in captivity. They're going to find themselves in exile if there's not a change. Well, true to form, the Jewish people didn't listen to the Hebrew prophets. 
and so in 587 BC, guess what happened? The Babylonian Empire came to Jerusalem. Um, they took down the city. They destroyed the temple and they took a large group of the Jewish people back to Babylon into captivity. They were now in exile in Babylon, just like the prophets said would happen. However, this isn't the end of the story. The prophets had hope. They had great hope. They believed that there would be a, a, a remnant of transformed Jews who would come back to Jerusalem, who would rebuild the city. They would live in a new Jerusalem, and it would be a place where God's presence continually dwelt. Well, um, in 539 B.C., nearly 70 years after the exile, guess what? The Babylonian Empire collapsed, and now the Persians are ruling the world. And in 538 B.C., the Persians have allowed as many Jewish people who want to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem, even though it's still in ruins. So under the leadership of a high priest by the name of Joshua... And uh, a man by the name of Zerubbabel, who was uh, 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 an heir of King David, a group of exiles, came back to the city of Jerusalem that was in ruins. They began to rebuild the city, and they began to rebuild their lives. And this story, remember I said it's intertwined into Ezra and Nehemiah. This can be found in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. Now, at face value, everything seems really good. They've been released from captivity uh, they've come back to the city and they're, they're rebuilding. It sounds like the, one of those, and they lived happily ever after stories. But that's not really what happened. Um, when you read through Ezra, you have to take Haggai's account, and there's only two chapters in Haggai, but you have to take Haggai's narrative and you have to place it between chapters 4 and 5 of Ezra. In fact, the last verse of chapter 4 of Ezra says this, so remember, they've come back, they're rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the house of God. And then it says, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. In other words, there was great opposition to the rebuilding of the temple. And so the work stopped. And not only did it stop, but it stopped for 16 years. The opposition was so great that they stopped rebuilding the temple for 16 years. And then in Ezra chapter 5, remember I said you place Haggai in between 4 and 5. In, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, Now Haggai the prophet prophesied to the Jews. This is in 520 B.C. This is about 70 years after they've come out of Babylonian captivity. Haggai's prophecy came when the Jews were extremely vulnerable. They had been humbled by the captivity and by the exile. Uh, they were hopeful in their return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple, but the opposition was so great, uh, they became so discouraged that they quit rebuilding. Sixteen years have passed, and the temple is still in ruins, and now the Jews are facing some really big challenges in their life. Why? Well, Haggai addresses this. They were experiencing adversity and poverty because they neglected the priority of worship and they failed to follow through with God's direction. And we're going to look more at that next week. 
One of the reasons that the book of Haggai stands out from all of the other Old Testament books is that as Haggai encouraged the Jews through the prophetic word to continue on with the construction of the temple, they listened. Think about it. How many times have we uh, looked at Old Testament passages about the children of Israel and they draw close to God, but then they rebel and they walk away from God. They draw close, they listen, but then they stop listening. This time it was different. Haggai encouraged them through the prophetic word to continue on with the construction of the temple and they listened. And, and, And hear this. Because they took this physical act to rebuild the temple, there was a shift in the spiritual climate of their lives. Listen, they took a physical act. They began to physically rebuild the temple. And what we find as we read through is that there was a shift. There was a change in their spiritual relationship, in their spiritual connection with God. Let's think about that. How often has God directed you to do something and you failed to follow through with his direction? And so suddenly you find yourself feeling a bit distant from God. You find yourself um, dry, immune, not caring about your relationship with God the way you once had. But then something happens. The Holy Spirit is speaking. You listen, and you begin to make literally physical movement towards doing what God says. And because of that physical movement, you begin to experience a spiritual change. Suddenly you find that everything inside of you is waking up. You're starting to hear God's voice in a way that you had heard in the past. That you, um, you, have, a, you have no longer, it's, you're not immune to God, but instead there's, a, there's an anticipation, there's an excitement that's building up. You want to do what he's asking you to do simply because by step of faith and obedience, you stepped out and you did something that you really didn't want to do. And as a result... Everything changes. I've had that happen in my life where a spiritual shift happens just through obedience. And that's what it's really all about is obedience. Um, uh, before we look to the, to the teaching notes for some um, personal application, uh, I, wanna con- I just want to briefly, I want to quickly summarize for you uh, some of what we're going to, or uh, much of what we're going to find in uh, Haggai's prophetic words in the weeks to come. So would you take your Bibles? And when you open them up to Haggai chapter 1, if you haven't already, remember uh, Haggai is very brief. There's only two chapters. And if you're not doing this electronically, if you're old-fashioned like me and you're going pages, it might take you a little bit to get there and it's okay to use the index. I've had to use that once or twice. Just no judgment on you. Um, As I said, the book of Haggai consists of only two chapters And within those two chapters are four short prophetic messages to the Jews. And here's the breakdown of what we find in those prophetic messages. The first prophetic message is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And what we find is Haggai's accusation against the Jews, and we find the Jews' response. And here's his accusation. You Jews are living in really nice houses while God's house is still in ruins. What's up with this? 
And then he goes on to say, life is hard and challenging for you because like your ancestors, you've broke your covenant with God. You've been called to live in covenant relationship and you broke the covenant relationship that way you have with God. He asked the question, what's more important to you, your house or your allegiance to God? And something happens. Remember, they listen. And because they listened, they started rebuilding the temple. And we're going to see that right away next week. The second prophetic message is found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And Haggai addresses some shattered expectations. The temple that they're building is quite unimpressive compared to the temple that Solomon had built some 500 years earlier. If you've read about Solomon's temple, it was, it was something else. Gold, it, 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 was, it was beautiful. And, and so now they're building just kind of a simplified version of the temple. And as a result, there had been people there who uh, were there before the captivity. They had seen the temple before it had been destroyed. And now they're looking at what they say is just kind of a, a, a simplified version. And, and the morale gets very low. And, and, and they're not really motivated to keep on building. But Haggai, through his prophetic word, he reminds them, of the prophetic importance that they would find in Scripture about the temple that they're rebuilding, the role it's going to play in the kingdom of God. And he encourages them, keep on building. And then the third um, prophetic message is found in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And Haggai calls the people to faithfulness in their covenant with God. He reminds them that it's only through true repentance and faithfulness to their covenant with God that God will bring them uh, favor and blessing and that they'll experience his kingdom. Um, What he's saying is, you know, it's all up to you. You get to make a choice. You can have your allegiance to God or you can do your own thing. It's not God's fault. You you get to choose. Your future is, is in your hands. You know, the same is true for us. We've been called as a people, when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, it's a covenant relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And in that covenant relationship, we're given a way to live out our life. We live out our life through holiness and commitment to God. And we have to be true to that covenant. But when we break that covenant, when we walk away from it, when we compromise it, we shortchange ourselves. We don't truly experience the blessing and the favor of God. We don't walk or live in the fullness of the kingdom of God. So the same is true for us. Our future's in our hands, right? We get to make a choice. And then there's the fourth prophetic message. It's in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And it's simply an encouragement and a reminder of their future hope in the kingdom of God. Now, I know I've given you a lot. Um, it might feel more like a history lesson, uh, but it's necessary for us to have that foundation if we're going to draw out personal application and, uh, in the weeks to come, if we're going to see how relevant this is. So what I want to do now, though, is I want to spend some time in the last few minutes with some personal application. Um, I, I want to I read just two verses from chapter 1, and, and then we're going to see what's there for us. So listen as I read Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
It says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shethiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. The first thing that I'd like to draw out of those two verses is for us to take notice of how God refers to the Jews. Depending on the translation you have, it might say this people or as I read, these people. Notice he didn't refer to them as my people or my children. Instead, he says these people. Uh, Obviously, there was a distance between God and the people. But here's what we have to note. It wasn't God who had moved. It was the children of Israel. It was the Jewish people. They had distanced themselves from God because they had broken their covenant through idolatry and injustice. They had become more devoted to themselves than they had in their devotion to God. And I wonder, how often does that happen to us? How easy is it to become more devoted to ourselves? We get caught up in our world. We get caught up in our stuff. We get caught up in life. We get caught up in career. We get caught up in family, whatever it might be. And we find that we're more interested in ourselves, our little world, as opposed to having one and only allegiance to God. But here's the deal. And Scripture tells us when we place God first, everything else falls into place. And even our desires change. So this is something that we all have to guard against. That we don't allow ourselves to become more devoted to self than we are to God. Um, The second thing that we should note is what follows the phrase, these people. Uh, It says, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And my paraphrase of what they're saying is, you know, just uh, listening to what you're saying, Haggai, um, you know, right now, it's just not good timing. The situation's just not really good. We just don't think that it would be a good time to get involved in in doing the work of the Lord, rebuilding his house. We've, We've got other things to do. And you know what I call that? An excuse. It was nothing more than excuse. Remember how I said they were more devoted to themselves than they were to their allegiance to God? Well, to blame not rebuilding or continuing the construction of the temple on it not being a good time was nothing more than an excuse. If they had to stop their own lives to go and rebuild the temple, then they couldn't continue to be devoted to themselves. And they weren't quite ready to give that up. Up until this point. So it was an excuse. This is just one of several excuses uh, that they had. uh, Along with the excuse of the time is not right. Uh, They may have said we don't have the resources to rebuild. Remember we uh, alluded to the fact that they were living in poverty. So maybe they said we just don't really have the resources to live. Or or maybe they thought uh, an excuse would be well if. It's happened in the past and it'll happen again. If we start rebuilding, our, our, uh, our enemies, the opposition is going to stop us. So why should we even start? Or maybe an excuse was, you know, uh, we've got other projects that we need to be working on right now. I think oftentimes that's an excuse we have to God. You know, God, I, I, I'll do that, but later. I've got some stuff I need to take care of right now. Let me ask you, 
How good are you at making excuses? Let me ask you that again. How good are you at making excuses? So interesting responses come. I found that I am really good. I am masterful at making excuses when I really don't want to do something that God's asked me to do. And I can make my excuses sound really holy. I can make them sound biblical. I can make it sound like I'm being a martyr for my family. I am really masterful at making excuses. And you're laughing, but you are the same way. That's not, you are the same. We are masterful at making excuses when we don't want to do something that we know we're supposed to do. The theologian Matthew Henry said, For the person who wills to do what is right, the time is always present. However, we mortals are ingenious when we wish to hide our delinquencies. Isn't this true? We are masterful. We are ingenious when we want to hide our delinquencies. We can make excuses and we can make them sound so good. I think it's true uh, because so often we are more given to our own interest than to our allegiance to God. And, and, and this can happen with, with anybody, whether you've been a, a believer one year or 40 years. I accepted Jesus when I was seven, when I was six years old. I turned 60 this year. So I've been at this a long time and I am still really good at making excuses after 50 something years of walking with the Lord. But again, I don't think that any of us are different. Here, there's some challenges that come with our excuses. And let me walk you through quickly what these challenges are. Uh, the challenge with our excuses is that when God gives clear direction, our excuses become an insult to God. Remember, not only is God all intelligent, but God is all knowing, all seeing. And that means he knows what's going on inside of us. He can see through our excuse and he can look right into the motive of our hearts. That's the challenge with our excuses. They're an insult to God. The second challenge is that excuses can cause us to miss a God moment. Remember, God always has our best interest in mind. God always has good gifts for us. God always presents us with life-changing opportunities. And when we make excuses, we block these opportunities. An excuse will keep us from doing what God has called us to do. Another challenge, excuses can limit the potential God has placed in your life and the plans he has for your life. Remember, we've said this already, it's not God who's holding out on us. It's us. We're the ones holding out on God. And not only are we holding out on God, but we're holding out on ourselves when we make excuses. And finally, 
excuses can cause us to miss the blessing of obedience. I'm not really going to say anything about this because we're going to talk about it in weeks to come, but it's all about obedience. Sometimes it's really hard to choose the right thing, the God thing. It can be really easy to make an excuse. Choosing the hard right over the easy wrong always yields the greatest return. When we choose disobedience, when we make an excuse, we are shortchanging ourselves because remember, God has good gifts. God always has our best interest in mind. He has provided for us through Jesus Christ uh, not only abundant life, but eternal life. Life in his kingdom, life as citizens of the kingdom. He so loves us that he wants us to have this life, but he calls us to a certain way of life. And he calls us to do certain things. And when we make excuses, we limit ourselves and we limit what God can do through us. So let me ask you again today two questions How good are you at making excuses? And are you making excuses today? Is there something that God is asking you to do and you've been telling him, it's not a good time. I don't have the resources. I've got other projects to work on. You know the list. And if you've been making excuses, would you be willing today to surrender those excuses to God and say, God, I'm going to exchange my excuses for obedience and I'm going to take a physical action and begin to do what you've called me to do. And in doing so, I anticipate that there will be a shift in my spiritual life. I will begin to see things in a brand new way. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? God, I begin by confessing that I am really good at making excuses when I don't want to do something. Especially even when you're asking me to do something. I'm masterful at just coming up with reasons why I can't. And I ask that you forgive me. But God, because I believe that we're, we're all so much alike, I know that that would be the case for everyone else in this room. So I I just ask that you forgive each person in the room. Even as they're asking you right now for forgiveness, I pray that they would know that you have forgiven them. And Father God, we know that you have put great potential in us and you have great plans for us. And we simply have to be willing. We have to be obedient. We have to say yes to your direction. And so I ask that you would empower us by your spirit to be a people who say yes, even when it's hard, that we would choose the hard right instead of the easy wrong. And as a result, Father God, as we begin to take physical action towards what you're calling us to do and the excuses go away, I pray that we would see a shift in our spiritual life, the cl spiritual climate of our own lives that we would see through a physical action of being obedient, that we grow, we change, we become more like you. So we commit ourselves to you and to this today. 
with your heads bowed and your eyes closed uh, because of an ongoing commitment I've made, I just want to ask today, is there anyone here today and you've never entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Uh, maybe you've made a lot of excuses. The time's not right. Uh, I, I, I just, I can't do that. Uh, but you recognize because the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart and to your life that something's missing. And if that's you, I want to give you an opportunity today to say yes to Jesus. So I'm just going to ask a simple question. Everybody's heads bowed, eyes closed. If you're here today and you never asked Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, and you want to do that today, would you just lift up your hand and let your eye catch my eye? Is there anybody? Father, thank you once again for uh, a group of people who have gathered who know you and who are committed to you. And I pray that as we leave this place, that your light, the light of Jesus, shine through us so brightly that people are drawn to the Jesus in us and we have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And we pray that you would continue to uh, just draw people to this place who don't yet know you. We thank you for those over the past weeks who have made a decision to follow you. And we just ask that you continue to multiply that. So today we commit ourselves to you. I pray blessings and favor over every person in this room as they go and as they experience their week. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.